0: My name is Daniel T, and welcome to the SA Fireside Podcast. Each week, we bring you another fireside chat with an old-timer discussing the questions and topics we compiled surveying the world of SA. You can visit us on SAFireside.com to hear all the recordings, and if you have any questions or feedback, you can email me at daniel at SAFireside.com. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. It's our hope and our goal that this recording will help those old and new to the program to gain more tools that will help further their recovery. And so, without further ado, it's time to hear today's Fireside Chat. Welcome to this week's essay Fireside Chat. This week, I sat down with Dave H. from Franklin, Tennessee. Dave joined the fellowship in August of 1985... And he is sober since he joined. He originally joined in Rochester, New York as a married, however separated man at the age of 33. He moved to Detroit in January of 1986, attending another S Fellowship until he helped start S.A. there in Detroit in January of 1987. He also divorced in 87 and moved to the Nashville, Tennessee area in 1988. He remained single and sober there until he remarried in August of 1996. Among other things, Dave is a pioneer of sober dating in SA. I thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation, and I really think you're going to as well. And so here it is. Thank you for joining me on another SA Fireside Chat. Today we have Dave H. from Nashville joining me. Hi, Dave. Hey. Thanks for joining us. So, as is traditional with the way that we're doing these things, we're going to start with a uh, 15 minute, roughly 15 minute qualification how it was, what happened, and what it's like now. Roughly five minutes each, and then we'll go into these questions that we've gathered from the world of essays So without further ado, I'm going to mute myself and give you, give you the mic. So thank you again for joining.
1: I am Dave, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. And by the grace of God and all you people listening out there, I've been sexually sober since August 1st, 1985, something for which I am Frequently, but never sufficiently grateful for. For me, I was exposed to pornography at the age of eight by a neighbor, teenage boy, who showed me some pictures that his father had hidden in his dresser drawer. And by today's standards, they were pretty tame, but I immediately was attracted to those pictures. And over the next few weeks, he encouraged me to take off my clothes, and we smoked cigarettes while we looked at the, these pictures. I got aroused, and only once today we would—that would be technically called sexual abuse—only once did he ever ask me to do anything to him, and I really could not do it, and and he never pressed it, but. That started a whole cycle for me of seeking out those kinds of photographs. And in retrospect, we had the, I grew up in a typical look good family. The house was immaculate. The yard was immaculate. Both my mother and father worked, but back in those days, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, or primarily the 60s. I was born in the early 50s back then there wasn't daycare so my you know father worked had an office job on the day shift and my mother had an office job on the night shift and so there was always a parent at home but it allowed us to move to a you know this all started the year we moved from the house that the only house that I knew we moved exactly 4 miles but it was into a suburb of Dayton Ohio and it was shortly after we moved that I met this boy. There were, there were only a couple of houses finished on the street. It was a brand new subdivision, so there was a lot of con- construction going on around us. And with new kids moving in, we spent a lot of time on these construction sites. And there, there was a lot of pornography there. Today, what you know would be considered pretty soft, but nevertheless, over time, we accumulated a stash of it. We had a fort out in the woods, and very early on. I'm not sure how long it was before I learned how to masturbate, but well, before puberty. And because my mother worked the night shift, we ate dinner very early. And so while the other kids were at home having dinner, I was up in the fort looking at our stash and masturbating to it. And that's how I grew up. I would say that I was a very late bloomer, as as was my father. I didn't go through pu- puberty until I was 17. Junior high and high school, where we were in locker rooms and things like that, and we had to shower together, it was, oh, I was humiliated because I didn't grow as quickly as others. I was always the last one picked for a sports team. I didn't do well in gym. It was always, I did everything I could to get out of it because it was so embarrassing for me. And, but I had this overwhelming desire to be with a woman and you know, to live out you know, these pictures. You know, the first racy movie I went to was one of the. It was the first James Bond movie back in the '60s, and I can still remember scene, explicit scenes from that. And even though I really didn't understand what the, you know he was doing in bed with these women, it just was exciting and titillating. And through high school, I was always the smallest and the shortest, and I finally went through puberty my senior year of high school, and I started to get taller and, and more confident. And I had two dates my entire senior or my entire high school career, which in the United States back then was three three years. And But when I went off to college, that's when I gained my full height, And I got a lot more confident and wanted to be with women. Every the people, all the people that I was hanging around with, that's what they were doing. They were, this was, I graduated from high school in 1970. This, I grew up during the Woodstock and uh, free love. And, and I just thought this is what normal people do. There was lots of pornography in college. And the fraternities would have stag movies where they would show very graphic sex acts. And that was How they recruited people, and so there was nothing about it that seemed the least bit deviant. Although I kept it to myself, I knew immediately when that boy first showed me those pictures. I didn't tell my parents, and I have to say, I started to say, my my dad was bipolar. I believe he was an alcoholic. I believe he was a sex addict. We didn't talk about things in my house, so everything looked good on the outside, but. But on the inside, in, on the inside the four walls of that house, we all walked around on eggshells. And my dad would, when he was depressed, would lock himself in, in his or would stay in his bedroom the whole weekend long and and would not speak to us. He would rage at us. You never knew what was going to set him off. We were trained very early that it, things that we did would set him off. And. My addiction was a way I, I comforted myself and I used it whether I was happy or whether I was sad all circumstances uh, it was my go-to uh, when I got to college I first started dating and uh, my objective was to try to be as physical as quickly as possible I thought that's what I was seeing in the movies that's what I was hearing other people do and uh, and that's what I did too uh, again no, thinking nothing, there's nothing different about me about this. I, I certainly didn't talk about it, but I figured everybody else was doing it just like I was. I didn't have intercourse until I was 21, but to me, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. This was what I was looking for. And, and when I finally married in my late 20s, it was with it was with somebody who seemed to like sex as much as me. She was attractive. She had every physical feature that I wanted and intellectually as well. And when we got married, I threw out my magazines. I really didn't think I was going to need them anymore. We were going to have sex as much as I wanted. And I thought everything was good. And it wasn't long, though, before the masturbation creeped back in. And in my heart of hearts, I wanted to, I felt like, I would be faithful to her and and it wasn't until a fateful day in 1984 when I turned on the TV to basically to get a lust hit one of the one of the guys that started talk radio back in my hometown was now a national figure in coming out of Chicago and it was a talk show and by then the, his show had gotten pretty racy and I, you know i turned on the tv that day primarily to get a hit and instead i saw a guy sitting behind frosted glass so all you could see was his profile and he was describing his behavior of he had a pornography stash and he kept it secret from his wife and he masturbated to this pornography and the the, the audience back then was made up primarily of women and there was a lot of giggling and And laughing and but I sat down and I was glued because this guy was telling my story and I had never even considered that what I was doing was was an addiction and and that was the topic that day sexual addiction and uh, I, I talked about it early on that that was happenstance it was it was just it was just serendipity that I would turn on the TV on that particular day. But, you know, there were a couple of things that happened to me leading up to it. The first one was I got married. For the most part, I was happy. We, we didn't know how to handle, you know, conflict very well. And I was very codependent and and I was working lots of hours. To, my wife was was a shopper. And, and I spent a lot of hours at work because I was fearful, and, uh, but I was doing really well in my career. And one of my friends from college called me one day and said he'd had a spiritual experience, a white lightning spiritual experience, a white light kind of experience. And I could tell that he was different. And, and so it prompted me to go back to church. And I had I'd basically taken the 70s off. And I had not been in church since I would graduated from high school, except for on the high holy days, Mother's Day and and Christmas and Easter. And so I went back to church and I began feeling like maybe there was a God out there that loved me. And it wasn't long, though, before I began to become aware of all the, the stuff that was going on in my head. That I was sexualizing every woman that I saw, that I had people at work rank ordered. If my wife were to die today, this is the person I would go after kind of thing. And, and then I started feeling guilty about it. And so I tried to control it. And I realized how difficult that was to be to, you know, to control. And then I, I think the next awareness I had was that not that I, I couldn't control it, but while I continued to masturbate, I had the awareness that it didn't work. That no matter what I did to heighten the experience or intensify the experience or whatever, I always was left feeling empty afterwards. And those were two pretty powerful awarenesses. I'm doing something that I don't want to do, and it doesn't work. And and so when that when I learned that I was an addict and I identified with it immediately. Then that, that, was the piece of the puzzle that was missing. This is an addiction. And I, like I said, i never had a concept of that. I was still married at the time and I naturally did not tell my spouse. I was moving into, a, had left a company that had sent me through college and I was starting a new career. And But within a number of months I'd realized i had made a mistake. I was working in a really crazy atmosphere and it was about that my time that my my spouse said that she wasn't happy and we started getting some counseling of course I had no idea that this impacted my ability to have a relationship and so I didn't say anything about it and it wasn't until she decided to move out that I was getting some crisis counseling because I you know I couldn't sleep I couldn't eat I was under a lot of pressure at work and I Came to the conclusion if I didn't get some time off, I was going to get fired, and I was debilitated. So I took some time off, and at the end of our that crisis section, I was off work for about five or six weeks. I finally, the last one of my last sessions with this psychiatrist, I said, "I don't think this has anything to do with my breakup, but I have a problem with sexual addiction." And he looked, he pulled open his desk drawer, and he looked at something, and he wrote something down on a piece of paper, and he slid it across the desk. And and this piece of paper said, SA, PO Box 300, Simi Valley, California. And he said, you got to write to these people, they might be able to help you. Didn't have a clue what SA stood for. I'm not sure if I would have known if I would have written a letter. But I went home, and I wrote a letter, and I mailed it off to Simi Valley, California. And about a week or two weeks later, I get a envelope, uh, that had a brochure, our brochure, with the the problem, the solution, and the 20 questions. And, and when I read the part that said that I was addicted to the tease, the forbidden, the only way I knew to be free of it was to do it, I cried. I said, this is where I need to be. And that was May of 1985. The next few months were a blur. You know, My wife had moved out, we pursued a legal separation, we had to sell our house, and even though I I got a contact, and I was in Rochester, New York at the time, I, I got a contact, and I didn't call him, and he finally called me in July, just as I was getting ready to move out of the house, and told me about where they were meeting. They had one meeting a week in Rochester, and it was at a mental health facility, And the last time I acted out was the night I moved out of my house, the dream house that I thought where we were going to have a family and children. And I acted out because I didn't know anything else to do. And I wanted to be sober a week by the next meeting, by, by my first meeting. I felt like I really needed to have that. So I white knuckled it for a week and went to that meeting. And one of the guys that was at that first meeting is still in the program and still sober. And our sobriety date is different by maybe four or five days. But I just talked to him within the last few months. And what what are the odds? There were four of us at that meeting that, you know, that first meeting that I attended, and two of us are still around. And uh, so that's how it started. And I immediately knew what I had to quit doing. The, The masturbation was the issue for me. The lust was a. I know that's going to be one of the questions we may talk about later. But lust was a vague concept for me. I knew that I needed to stop masturbating and that was my bottom line. And and that's what I the three other guys at that first meeting their acting behavior was stuff that I had never even heard of before so several of them, but what I heard was this common issue and so long story short I was in Rochester for another few months. I ended up moving to Detroit. There were no SA meetings in Detroit in 1986 when I moved there. And so I attended another fellowship for almost a year. And I was in contact with central office and asking for guidance and ended up starting a a couple of meetings in, in Detroit. And was there for about two years, moved to Nashville. and. 1988. And when I moved to Nashville in nineteen eighty-eight, there were two meetings in Nashville. And there are now I would say hundreds in the Nashville Nashville area. And but everywhere I went, I was the guy with the most sobriety. By working steps one, two, three, I was sober a little over four years before I got my first sponsor. And he's still my sponsor. So we've been together over thirty years now. And and What a miracle. You know, I started working the steps and I told him I was ready to do step four. And he said, man, let's start at step one. And, but I, by the time I had gotten to step nine, it was about six months later because my sponsor is pretty pushy and he got me to volunteer to uh, lead our first conference in Nashville. That was our first international conference, and I was able to talk to my ex-wife. We were divorced by then. I've been divorced by then by about three years, and she was able to come to the conference. I, I made my amends to her, told her about my history and how I had failed in our marriage, and basically she denied it. She said, you don't have a problem. And so that uh, I still had this hopes of re- regaining that r- relationship, but that didn't happen. And it wasn't long after that that I began dating in sobriety. I was about four and a half years sober when I had my first date and uh, was single for the next, I was single and sober for about 11 years. I got married, uh, I remarried. Two days after my 11th sobriety birthday, I went through dating a single and sober, which was an amazing experience. And I learned a lot about relationships and about honesty. And I've now been married for, we're celebrating August the 3rd will be my 25th wedding anniversary. We have two children, one of which was conceived via in, in vitro because it turned out we both had infertility issues. And our second child is adopted. So we have two miracles children. And I would have none of that if I had not found this program. And I, it hasn't gone away. My addiction has not gone away. I still go to meetings. I still sponsor people. I still work my steps. I try to do a daily inventory and and do a gratitude list. And uh, periodically share that with my sponsor. And I, I can't imagine my life had I not found Essay when I did. I was longing, I had these fantasies about my wife dying and this, this beautiful creature that I would marry. And oh my gosh. And by the time that all that, that she did leave, I knew too much. And I knew that I needed to stay out of relationships. I needed to work on my recovery. And we can talk about a little bit about that later probably too because one of the key things that helped me as well was my codependency recovery. And and that really helped me with my relationships and helped me see that I needed to do a lot of work on me before I was ready for any kind of relationship. So that's I probably went a little long here but I think that's thumbnail sketch
0: i want to thank you so much it was actually riveting for me it really was and you used the word serendipity and serendipity was woven through your story how god basically brought you to the program and brought these aligned everything in your life to 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 this path and it's a really beautiful story and yes as as much as i relate to james bond being an early part (laughs) of my story at the same time it's interesting I'm coming on to 22 years marriage, which is n- not a big difference, but 17 plus years of that marriage in active addiction, which is a very different story. But to relate to what you're saying for me as well, codependency, the recovery of codependency has been a massive part of my recovery once we uncovered that, that the acting out. So we're going to go into these questions a little bit and, and talk about a few of these different topics. And, and, and it is... As you mentioned, lust is really the first question because our first step says we're powerless over lust and our lives have become unmanageable. And by the way, I I, I saw a, a lot of unmanageability in your story as well towards the end of that, of the acting out. But what is lust? How do you describe lust for yourself? How do
1: you understand lust? For me, I can remember being bewildered by the word and I remember looking it up and in a dictionary and because what is this they're talking about because back then I spent a lot of time listening to tapes and my sponsor's first sponsor in the program was a very um, eloquent speaker who talked about this topic his name is Jess and he as soon as he heard the word lust he said Eureka this is my problem and I and I would You know, I knew Jess. I talked to Jess. I didn't have that experience. But, you know, what I've come to and what I realized it was for me is, and and Jess's definition is still works today. Jess's version was him wanting anything that God wasn't giving him at that moment. And mine was more related to the sexual side of things. Any time that I'm spending in my head um, thinking about anything sexual is lust, and that is the driving force behind my sexual acting out. Because if I intend, when I ent- entertain it, it creates craving, and once the craving starts, that's the only way I knew to get rid of the craving was to do it, and. When I started in in the program in in Rochester, you have to remember the time. It was 1985. We were very concerned about our anonymity because of the subject matter. And so before you came to a meeting in Rochester, you were interviewed. We would meet with people at a restaurant or whatever and interview them because we were so afraid of the press exposing our fellowship. and and making an issue out of it and yeah there was a lot of secrecy and and that sort of thing and yeah i learned years ago that that was still the practice in rochester in nashville there's so much recovery with multiple fellowships a a n a s a um oh uh, gamblers anonymous that people just walk into meetings I mean, we we have them up on the website and, and that kind of thing. But back then, uh, and we didn't have we didn't have uh, cell phones, and so the only way you could make a phone call was to call somebody. There were three other people at that first meeting, and it, and we were the core for a number of months. the The person who called me to my first meeting and led that first meeting said he was sober for five months. And I about fell off my chair, and and I never saw him again. He led that first meeting. He 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 went back out, and this is 1985. We were in upstate New York. He was going to New York City to the bathhouses, and he ended up contracting AIDS and dying. And but he got me to my first meeting. His name was Vic. And uh, so there were three of us for a number of, of months. And so phone calls, the, these other guys were married. They they didn't tell their spouses that they were going to these meetings, so I couldn't make phone calls. So the, the only way I knew to break the spell very early on was to pray. And I was told that was an effective way of stopping the craving, stopping. And initially, sometimes... The thoughts would go for a while before I would realize what I was doing, and that when I discovered it, you know, I would say, "God, take it away," or "Thank you, God, for reminding me that I need you for my recovery." And so that's what lust is for me. It's and it can it can relate to cars, it can relate to houses, it could. But I was very fortunate when I came into the fellowship. I'd had all those things, and I was miserable, and. The so I knew those did not work. And so when I began to think about these kind of things, I, I would pray it away. And, and, and it, it worked. And, and that's how lust worked for me. And that's how I treat it today. I get these, what my sponsor would call post-traumatic you know, uh, stress flashes. I get triggered. Sounds, smells, music, I get triggered. And these thoughts come out of nowhere, and I can think about a picture that I saw fifty or sixty years ago, and and I just say, God, take it away. Or and if it keeps coming back, that's when I know I gotta I gotta call my sponsor or I gotta call somebody in a fellowship, talk about it in a meeting, and but that's what lust is for me today.
0: It's interesting when I when I first joined SA, which was I guess in. 2001, there was only six, seven people here in in Israel, in in the whole fellowship. Now there's hundreds. And I I didn't last long, by the way. That's my story. I went back out there very quickly. But uh, I remember that there was no talk of steps and no talk of sponsoring those meetings. Uh, Was that a similar experience for you over there? What did you guys do over there in the meeting?
1: We were, we leaned on each other. And we, I look back at it, one of my longest friends in the, in the fellowship I met in uh, 1986 at my first SA international conference. So it was, they were called international back then, but it was in St. Louis and I went to St. Louis and this was after I went, I was participating in in the fellowship, a different S fellowship. Everybody was defining their sobriety for themselves. And it was crazy. It was crazy, but I was still sober according to the essay definition. And so I was in contact with central office. I tried to start a meeting on a day that suited me. It turned out Tuesdays was the best day of the week for me. And I went to a facility that was hosting this other fellowship and said, is is your facility available on Tuesdays? They said, no, it's only available on Sunday afternoons. I said, well, that's not going to work. I called central office back. I was talking to our founder back then, and and uh, he said, why don't you come to the conference in, in St. Louis? So I flew from Detroit to St. Louis, and I met three people who were the core of the fellowship in Nashville, Harvey, Judson, and Gene. And I was sitting in a meeting. I don't know what the topic was. And I think it had something to do with God's will. And I Heard a voice in my head say, I want the meeting on Sunday afternoon. And I went back to Detroit. I called these people up and I said, I'd like to start an essay meeting. Well, come in, tell us about it. Gave them a pamphlet, told them. And uh, we started a meeting on Sunday afternoon. and, And I talked to some of the people in the other fellowship and I said, I'm starting this meeting. I think within three weeks, we probably had more than a dozen people. And uh, because the, this counseling center, where I, where we were having these meetings, was called Children of Alcoholic Parents, CAPS, and they were referring all these people to our fellowship, and so that's how it it got started in in Detroit. And uh, again, the serendipity. Hearing this, oh, maybe I should do it when it's available as opposed to when it's convenient for me. And it all yeah, I'd like to say that essay continued very strong after I left, but it pretty much folded. But the Son group that was spun out of that group is probably one of the strongest Son fellowships in the country. And and they started a And so it's just amazing. If you if you're if you listen and it was at that place that I, I, I got help for my codependency, which turned out to be another miracle. So anyway.
0: Amazing story.
1: All right. The, the, so going back to the
0: questions, the one of the big questions that people ask when they walk in, and this is this came up in so many different ways when we sent out this questionnaire. Is this pro does this program work? Will it really work for me? How could it possibly work for a low-bottom drunk like me who's done all the crazy
1: things that I've done? What do you say to that guy or, or girl? <sighs> Stick around until the miracle happens. Yeah, you know, I think you know the cold, hard reality is that probably less than a third of the people who come in f- stick around. And and I think that section in chapter five of Alcoholics Anonymous is very is very telling. It says there are those people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, and. I was a compulsive liar and I still lie. I still do. I'm a people pleaser. When push comes to shove, I'm likely to tell you something I think will, that you want to hear from me. And I have to, and then I have to go back and make amends. Yeah. But what I've learned about lying is when you're, when you lie to other people, you're also lying to yourself. And when I read the definition of sobriety, for our fellowship, I knew exactly what I had to stop doing. And and I honestly believed in my heart of hearts that if I sought God, the God of my understanding, that I would get help. I, I wasn't I didn't know how that was going to work. But I think there's just it's you know, having that awareness of that self awareness that says that enlightened self interest that we talk about and saying, I, I need this. I know my life, all this stuff that I've done, none of it ever satisfied. And I, I go a step further. I would say that I would have told you that my drug of choice was being sexual with women. And it wasn't until I experienced healthy sexuality with my second wife, that I realized that everything that I was, done, was doing before was masturbation. It had, it had nothing to do with the other person, except what can I take from them? And if I perform well enough, maybe they'll want to do it again. But that, that was where it stopped. I, it, there wasn't the emotional intimacy. that I, I knew for me, emotional intimacy meant I had to talk to my wife about my fears. Because those were the things that I wanted to wall off from you. I didn't want you to know that I was insecure and that I was afraid of things. I, I had to put on this act. And, and it was letting her know that the things that bothered me or frightened me was how we developed our emotional intimacy. And and that opened up a whole new w- world for the physical side of things, which practically speaking, is a very small part of any relationship. It is. But that was my focus going into relationships. And so that's why it took me probably 11 years to figure all that out and to also realize that that I, I had this vision of reuniting with my ex. And I had another experience. In, we By that time, we'd been separated for over seven years and divorced for five and uh, another conference in Rochester and had dinner with her. And I was still single. I'd been dating for a number of years by then. I hadn't found anybody. and, And when we had dinner and I realized that we had taken different paths, I was pretty sad. But when I came home, I assessed my life and I said, I've got a great life. I have wonderful friends that I've made in this fellowship. And I can go on living single and sober. And by that time, I was in 1994, I was 42 years old. And I said, you know, if this is the way it has to be, I can do this. And I, I was to meet my wife about about eight or nine months later. So, anyway,
0: that's an amazing story again. Okay. So, what do I have to do to get sober? I'm convinced that I am. This will work for me because it worked for you. What do I have to do to get sober? What,
1: what's yeah, the, my plan? Yeah, that we go to meetings. We, as soon as we can, we we find a sponsor. And I, even here in Nashville, if I look at my home meeting, which is I've been attending this meeting for thirty-one years, and I would say there have been hundreds of people that have come and gone and me and one or two others are the only have been the only constants and then and then this past year we've had a complete changeover of people of people who have been coming for four or five years and sober for that amount of time that i haven't seen since covid broke out in, in march of 2020 it's you know for me it was realizing that you know, this was a health issue. I believe I have a terminal disease that will kill me. And I didn't understand that coming in. And I certainly wouldn't want to frighten anybody by that, but that's I've seen where this disease will take people. I had the I've had the benefit of nearly 36 years of meetings. And I see where this disease will take people. And I got off on a very high floor. I had a my bottom was very high. in comparison to to many, but I I had the enlightened self interest that that this is something I needed to stop doing. Okay, how do I stop doing it? I I go to meetings. I listen to how people are working their program. I got uh, we have a newcomers meeting format that we use for newcomers where we talk about we were when we came to our first meeting we were afraid of seeing someone we knew. I never had that fear. I didn't think there was anybody out there like me. And, but some people obviously are are more high profile than others. But all that being said, coming to meetings, hearing how other people were, being around people who had what I had and were wanting and trying to get better, it's instant intimacy. We go there and we tell our, tell the things, there are things when I experienced them, I I was pretty shame based. And so there there might be things that I thought or saw that I didn't want to share. And and what I, I learned, and it's something that I heard our founder say in Chicago in nineteen eighty six that you lead with your weakness. And that you talk about the things that you don't want to talk about. And where else can you experience the kind of honesty that we hear in meetings? And and learning the tools, the the prayers, the and now we have cell phones, the the anonymity piece and, and, and calling somebody on a landline where their wife might pick up or their child might pick up, but for the most part it isn't an issue any longer. And yeah, that's why I, I like to say my sobriety date at the beginning of a meeting, and it's not to show off, but it's just to say, I. the most comforting thing in our readings is in chapter five, where it says, none of us have been able to t- maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints, but we have developed a manner of living which requires honesty. And so we start where we're at. I didn't get my spot first sponsor until I was over four years sober. I was able to stay sober doing one, two, and three. And it's working the steps and reworking the steps, particularly with other people that keeps me reminding and reminded of, of the things that have, have helped me get where I'm at. And I don't ever want to go back. I just don't. And uh, I see those temptations every day, all day, and I've got to use the tools that I've been using for a long time. You keep coming, you get a sponsor. Yeah, you know, the program is is very simple. Working the steps with a sponsor in a fellowship of sobriety. You need to come to meetings. Because it helps, it, it a lot of us are loners and isolationists. It gets us out of our shell. We learn how to serve others by helping out with, with the meetings and the fellowship and and just the mechanics of operating the meeting. And but the program is working the steps. And however you choose to do it, I personally like our step into action because I'm an engineer and I like step by step instructions. And to me. When I did my steps, I was using the AA Big Book, and it's a lot less directive, and I like the way, I particularly like how our, each step where our members talk about how their experience with that step, and boy, that, to me, that is just, that works, that's a miracle to me. I probably read the 10th step, I read a page every day out of our literature, and I can't remember how many times I've read it. I could never figure out a time to do my 10th step. And because I was, at the end of the day, I was tired. You know, I had my first child when I was 47. I felt like I was tired for the next 10 years. And so the end of the day didn't work for me. But I found, in Step Into Action, in Step 10, one of the members said, find a time of day that works for you. And I realized that at lunchtime, I could do a 15-minute 10-step. And I started doing it only when I was in crisis. I was 24 years sober before I started this practice. So I'm i am I'm not a saint, but I've done it since. I was in crisis because the largest industrial company in the world that I worked for went bankrupt. And at the age of 57, with a 10-year-old and a uh, 9-year-old, I was going to have to find another job. And I had 35 years with this company, and I expected to retire from it. And and I was in crisis and I started writing a daily 10 step and I've tried to do that every day since. And it, it works. I, 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 I write about what my lust triggers are. I write about the things that I did right. I write about things I didn't do so right. And it really keeps on the forefront things that I need to work on. And I can talk about it in meetings and talk about it with my sponsor. So that's how you get sober. You keep coming back.
0: I really like the analogy you used of getting off on a high floor because I've heard an analogy that's the that, that that's part of the first step that you can get on the elevator, but you never know if the doors are going to open again. So you have to get off the floor and not get back on the elevator. That's a sort of yeah. beautiful analogy. What about the slipper? What about the guy who keeps relapsing? How? What do we say to them, especially? They want it so badly and they're not getting it. They keep on pushing themselves. They're not able to get through the withdrawal. What do we say to them? What do we do? What can we do?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm working with a guy right now who has been coming around for over 20 years and has never been able to maintain sobriety. And he had a change in attitude. I and mean, we talk about that in our literature, this all began with a change in attitude and at what level do we say that we're going to, that what we've been doing has not been working, but that being honest with yourself and being willing to take direction, I, I think that I can think of four or five people that I know right now that I've known for 20 plus years who have not been able to maintain technical sobriety, but they keep coming back. And uh, this person I'm working with right now is, was one of those people and asked me to be a sponsor a few months back. And I said, the only way I know to do it is to, to do work the steps together and, and, He's had a, he had a change in attitude and he's been working it hard and he's stayed sober uh, for the last five or six months, which is has been a long period of time. And I, I think a lot of us have an issue with shame. I think one of the things I, I've, I've learned from my sponsor is and it, it took me hearing this over and over, which is quit judging yourself. I have a forgetting disease. I I forget that this is an illness and not a moral lapse on my part. And frequently, more back then than now, but frequently, I would, if I had a thought or if I took a second look or whatever, and I shamed myself. And I call my sponsor, and I'd be in shame. And he said, "Why are you judging yourself? Did you forget about? Did, did you make a contract with God this morning about staying sober?" And I said, "Yeah." Then recognize that hey, there it is. There, there's your disease. There's my disease again. And that early prayer that I learned. Thank you, God, for reminding me that I need you. That works. And. I've gotten better about not judging myself, and and that, and I encourage others, particularly the people that I'm working with, that it's not an excuse, it's not a free pass, it's recognizing our need for a power greater than ourselves, the one I call God and other people call whatever. And that's the beauty of this fellowship, that I can't do it by myself and I hear God through other people, I and I encourage people to keep coming back. And I love them, and I pray for them, and I hope that someday it'll click for them like it, it did for me. And I just feel very fortunate that I basically got into the fellowship to save my marriage, and that was my motivation back then. and And it didn't wasn't too long before I was able to say, I'm doing this for me. It's a health issue for me. And, and I wanted, I'm a survivor. My, my, my first therapist said, you grew up in a concentration camp that, that, that constant vigilance of what's going to happen, What kind of dad am I going to see when I walk through that door today? And that's that constant stress, There was a reason why masturbation was so attractive to me and was so soothing for me. But as an adult, it did not work. And it it forced my emotional development to to be stunted very early on in my life. So keep coming back. It worked like we say. It works if you work it. And and don't judge yourself. Talk about. The fact I think a lot of people struggle with that idea that I have a disease and that that doesn't give you a free pass, but it does help you recognize that this is not that this is not easy. We've been doing this for when I came in, I figure I'd been acting out for 25 years, and so that we don't stop overnight. And I was fortunate; I've masturbated three times. Um, since I got sober, and that was because I had we had to, we tried in vitro three times, and uh, trust me, those experiences are—I can tell stories about those. But it was amazing. My sponsor walked me through it, and and we bookmarked it, and I I provided my sample, and I've got a strapping twenty-two-year-old son to, to prove it. It's it's a miracle. Thanks.
0: As as Harvey also always says if i'm in shame then i'm out of my first step which is really a, a tying in of everything you're saying and, and really what you did was you very clearly answered that what was my next question which am i a bad person so i'm i'm going to skip that unless you have anything to add to that
1: well I, I would just say what my sponsor what my sponsor says it always chokes me up the god of my understanding saw everything i ever did knew every thought i ever thought And he loved me so much. He brought me to this fellowship. That's that's it. What can I say anymore?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the first step. The, I think most of us get the powerlessness because if we walked into the rooms already, we get that we're doing behaviors that we can't stop unless you have anything to add to your understanding of powerlessness, but I'd like to understand how you understand unmanageability in your understanding.
1: Yeah, it, you know, for me it was the awareness that I was doing something that I did not want to do. And when I took an honest look at my life, here I was. My identity was tied to my job and my position at my job and and that I had a relationship and In 1985, I lost both of those things. My my wife moved out in May, and I took I I mentioned before I took some time off because I knew if I didn't, I was going to get fired. And so when I came back to work, I was reassigned to a special assignment. And I didn't. We were on a fiscal calendar year, and I didn't even. I was just. I went to my one meeting a week. I was going to church. I was going through withdrawal. I was going through lo- extreme loneliness because all my friends, for the most part, I'd met through my spouse. And my relationship with all these people just stopped. And uh, so I was very lonely. And, and I, I was looking actively for a job because I knew the, the culture where I was not good. And I fly off to Detroit in December on a job interview. And uh, on the way back, I realized, I felt very good about the job interview. And I realized on the way back that, holy cow, if I get this job, I'm going to be away from my spouse. Yeah, we were still married, but separated. What am I going to do with this relationship? God, what do you want me to do? I literally went into the office I had my interview on a Friday, spent the weekend in Detroit, just kind of looking around and um, came into work on Monday morning. And And my, my boss and I shared a, uh, a secretary and she said, Dick needs to see you. And I walked in and there was a personnel manager and my boss sitting at the conference table. And I said, this isn't good. And... They sat me down and proceeded to tell me that, that my position was being eliminated. And uh, I tried to push back a little bit, but I knew it was hopeless. And I, you know, we spent an hour probably going over this. I was going to be laid off and actually our fiscal year ended like in the first week of June or January, I'm sorry. And, and so I Walked out of the office, and my secretary said, So and so is on the phone. And this was a guy that I'd had the interview with in Detroit. And I, I, I said, oh, God's coming through for me. I just lost my job. I'm going to be offered a job. And I closed the door to my office and I picked up the phone. And the guy in Detroit said, oh, We really liked you, but we're probably not going to be able to tell you until after the holidays. And I hung up the phone, and I just cried my eyes out. I'd lost my job, I'd lost my spouse, but I'd, I had this faith that somehow, some way, this was all going to work out. I went to my my men's prayer group that Wednesday and, and, and broke down crying in front of all these men that I barely knew, and said, yeah, "I've lost everything that was important to me, but somehow I believe that God's going to get me through this." And I, I, but I don't know how that's going to be. And the guy in Detroit called me the following Monday and said we'd like to offer you a position and when can you start and I said well how about January 1st and he goes well we probably can't do it that quickly but how about January uh, 15th and and I flew to Detroit and got the best job I've ever had it, it just I wasn't sure how any of that was going to work out but it 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 it, it has and I i can tell story after story how all of this when i quit trying to run the show and tried at some level to follow what i thought might be god's will things have just have just worked out and i can't say that i wasn't fearful when all this was going on but it nevertheless it all it all worked out
0: I guess that's and I guess that's where the where the moral is. Instead of trying to manage life myself, let God manage it. That was the story that you were saying there.
1: Yeah, that 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 old saying is my best thinking got me here, and recognizing that that I, I took a pretty when I came back to the church, I adopted a pretty fundamental type of faith and literal translations and things like that. And but over time I was seeing a lot of gray in my life. For I'm a so I was a very conservative Christian and and God brings this Orthodox Jew into my life as my sponsor. That that can't get any grayer than that. And you know what I've learned from him as we've walked this road the last 30 plus years is just a testimony to that life is not black and white. And when I let go of trying to run the show and control things and let go and like we say, let God, it's it my my life is miraculous. There's no other way to describe it.
0: Thank you for that. And uh, just one other question around the first step. How do you see the allergy? How do you understand the allergy? Because that's something that's often kind of misconfused.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, if you read a step into action, I know there's a really good member, a story about the, the person really not seeing the Unmanageability, and the the guys at a treatment center, and he's talking to his counselor, and his counselor is saying, "What about unmanageability?" And he said, "I just don't see it." She goes, and his counselor, I think, is a female, but I may have just made that up. Says, "Okay, you're in a facility, a thousand miles from home. You're spending thirty thousand dollars because this, that, and the other thing have, have happened in your life." And what would you call that? <laughs> and it, that's what it took for this person to connect where he was in his life on the borderline, losing his family, his profession, spending thousands of dollars to get treatment before he had awareness of the unmanageability. And I think many of us, I'm an engineer, I've always done pretty well in school thought i was pretty smart you know, my faith tradition says all i have to do is accept that god loves me just the way i am and when i accepted that simple truth my my life changed forever and the, the thing i think i identified most with in that first time I, I read the problem and the solution was that my insides never matched others' outsides. I, I felt like everybody else knew what was going on, and I didn't have a clue. And, but I acted as if that I did. And uh, I, put on a, I put on the face that I, I thought you wanted to see from me. And it wasn't until I had this awareness that I, I do not have a clue. My best thinking has got me, I've lost my job, I've lost my spouse. It, 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 the masturbation didn't work. The nice things didn't work. The travel didn't work. Everything that I thought would make me happy did not make me happy. And so I thought I, maybe I better try it a different way. And I still struggle with this concept of service to others is the answer to all my problems. I'm, I'm selfish but i realized little by little letting go and i get i get a lot of satisfaction of helping other people because vic was there when i needed him and i never saw vic again and you know what wow it's just unbelievable and he was so he was so embarrassed that he put all the meeting material out on his front porch and we one of the one of the other guys the guy that I just talked to a few months ago, that's been in as long as me went and got it. And so here we were about each of us had having about a week or two weeks of sobriety. And that's why we didn't talk about the steps because we felt like we didn't know what we were doing, but we wanted to get sober and we, we went to local conferences and we, he and I tried to go to an open AA meeting and turned out it was a closed meeting. <laughs> we ended up having to get up and leave and oh my gosh, but we tried and, uh, and I knew immediately as soon as I heard other people share their stories, I was home. This is where I belong.
0: Yeah, it's good. You talk about happiness and, and service in the same sentence and I was taught and it really is becoming my experience that true happiness comes in being service to others. That is the secret yeah. to true happiness. Can we talk a little bit about surrender, another concept that is baffling for people walking in on day 1? What is surrender? How do you surrender? What does it mean to you?
1: I, I like that line where it says it felt off it would be off the edge into oblivion. But we took it. And like I said, when I came in I I knew without a doubt what I needed to stop doing. And and so how do I stop doing that? It's the the alcoholic saying I'm not going to take that first drink. How do I not do it? As I became aware of my thought life and, and you're listening to a guy who when I would get bored, would think up plot lines for porno movies. That's and not that there's ever a lot of plot, but that's what I did. I was constantly in my head, in being present, and having the becoming aware of all the time that I spent in my head, and, and most of the time that was, was sexually oriented, so that was lust. Becoming aware my my core issue is fear. And I when I do my daily contract, I talk about the characteristics that center around fear. Yeah, you know, number one is lust, anger, judgmental spirit, people pleasing, dishonesty, pride, gossip, worry, feeling that I'm not enough, envy, comparing myself with others. Those are all manifestations of my fear, and uh, so for me, surrender is about when I recognize that I'm fearful, and, I, and unfortunately, I had to learn about anger with my around my kids when they were really young, and for one of the first times in my life, connected with my dad, who. I really never experienced anger. What I experienced with him was rage. But I began to feel more compassion towards him when I realized that my anger was triggered by my fear. And my fear that my, my child was going to hurt themselves. They were going to break something that had some value. And I would at, react angrily. And I began to think, oh, my gosh that's what that was what was going on. my dad was grew up very poor and possessions had a lot of importance to him deserving possessions nice possessions taking care of things because money is scarce we're not careless with things oh my gosh when i started seeing that coming out with me and my kids i knew i had to do something about it and Surrendering that fear, I ha- I had to learn how to do that. And you know, fortunately, one of the guys in the program told me about a book, and it lists 15 behaviors that you practice when you're angry. And the first one is you stop talking. This the second thing is you leave the area, you remove yourself from the situation. And you know, that's what surrender looks like for me. And I realized coming in, you know, that you know, I've been doing this for a while. It took me a while to really understand that fear was my core issue and that, that when I was in fear, what I learned early on was to lust and, and sexual acting out. So early on, when I was, you know, I spent my three, first three weeks in the program. It was in August of 1985 and Rochester is on one of the Great Lakes, like Ontario, I was at the beach every weekend. And I was wondering why I was having this. The craving was there and really hadn't learned the tools. But first of all, the average person would say, if you're a sexaholic and, and one of your issues is sexualizing women, Why would you go to a place where there are a lot of women not wearing a lot of clothing? I was a sexaholic, and it took me a while to recognize that going to those kinds of places would cause me to feel uncomfortable. And so, over time, over the next fortunately in Rochester, New York, the summer pretty much ends at the end of August. So, after that, it really wasn't a problem. And but I learned that going to the places where I saw a lot of people made me feel more comfortable and I didn't have to worry about sexualizing or whatever so that was a form of surrender for me recognizing that I had to replace old behaviors with new behaviors I stopped subscribing to magazines I couldn't read a news magazine without going through and looking for pictures and I I started being more careful about the television that I watched. And uh, I didn't have cable back then so that I had more limited choices when it came to uh, triggers. And recognizing the triggers and then learning how to make adjustments to my life became the way that I stayed. I realized that and and it wasn't about uh, shutting myself into a room, but it was just making different choices about where I spent my time. And I, my my disease is triggered visually, primarily, but also with sounds and smells and, and all my senses, basically. And that that idea of recognizing, oh, my natural inclination is to do this when I experience this, and, and realizing that doesn't work, how do I let it go and not follow through on it and it's a process and for me i the only way i could describe it i i just told people my experience and my sponsor's experience i didn't act out after i came to my first meeting okay and and that's not very common it just isn't and i'm not special i didn't do anything special it just i had tried for a year and a half to stop on my own i I learned about My addiction in February of 84. I went to my first meeting in August of 85. So for over a year and a half, I tried on my own to stop doing what I was doing, and I could not. So the minute I heard that God could be of assistance, that one of the tools was saying a prayer, surrendering the right to to pursue whatever triggered me, that worked. And and I was fortunate. Like I said, I didn't have, I was single. These other married guys were calling me at home because they could. And so God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. These guys were calling me because I could not call them. And and that's the way it worked. And we talked ourselves through this. And before I ever got a sponsor, I had several guys who we, we sponsored each other. And we would check in every day. Hey, here's what, you know, I, I saw this person, and I've been thinking about it, and I, I'm going to cast it out to you and try to let it go, just not hold on to it, share it with somebody in the fellowship. What a gift that is. I don't have to ruminate on, on it all day long, and uh, I can just let it go.
0: Again, God weaving his way so perfectly through your life experience, and I have to say that was uh, really impactful for me to hear, the self-awareness that you experienced through describing those 12 forms of how fear comes up in your life. And I, I think just for those that are listening that that, that have an interest or, or a need for that stuff, I, I assume that you're talking about Anger Busting 101 as the book. So uh, uh, the next topic is complacency. But I guess, again, it you know, I don't want to answer for you, the guy who brings you to the meeting and then ends up going out there and dying is more than a good enough reason to realize that I can't get complacent in this. So let's talk about relationships a little bit. What is? How do you have a healthy relationship? How do you understand a healthy relationship? And of course, this is the codependency piece as well, very much involved in that.
1: Yeah, so the, the way all, all that worked for me was I was two years sober we're having regular meetings at this place called caps. All these people are coming in who had these, who grew up in my family. I'm hearing all these stories and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm not alone. And it was after several months after our essay meeting started, my, my best friend that had shared me his spiritual experience turned out he was in Detroit. And So I got, he and his wife and two kids, I just latched on to this family and, and I told the husband about my recovery, but I didn't tell him a lot. They were very, they were involved in this fundamental Christian movement and, and psychology was not on the forefront with that crowd. And anyway... They had encouraged me to demonstrate to my my then spouse that I was still involved with her, I wanted to be with her, and and so I they encouraged me to, to fly back to Rochester, take her flowers, pledge my love to her. And and they said, "Don't let let her say no." And I flew there, and she said, "Well, I can only spend you know an hour with you on a Saturday." And and I flew there. I got my flowers, showed up on her door, and she explained to me that she was engaged. And I said, "You're what?" I said, "We're married." How could you be engaged? And she said, "I've met this guy, and we've fallen in love." And in the way that we had a uh, legal separation so that after a year either party could file for divorce, an uncontested divorce because we'd already divided the property and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I came home and that was actually in 86 and 87 rolls around and we're having these meetings at this place called Caps. and my wife calls me and, and says I don't think I'm in love with this guy. And Maybe we ought to try again. And, and she said, I, I need for you to help me figure out how to get out of this. Cause by then they'd bought a house. And, and I said, well, I, I really don't think I'm in a position to do that. And so we had a couple of these phone calls and I said, holy, I had one of those eureka moments. I said, what is it about me that causes me to get into relationships? I had this awareness that this relationship, we had been married by, by the time we separated, we'd been married five years. And this was going on seven years of marriage, but we'd been separated for nearly two years. What is it about me that gets into all these relationships with people who leave me, then come back to me, and I accept them back with open arms, and then they leave me again? I, I realized that every relationship I had up until that time were exactly the same. And what was the constant in all this? Me. And so I, I called up one of the counselors there and I said, I'd like to get some help with this. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my sobriety. Yeah, you know, This is crazy. And that's what I learned about, This family system that I grew up in, my dad's bipolar disorder, his use of alcohol, food, smoking. And turned out when I went to look for pornography in my dad's drawer, it was there too. And over time, it became more and more explicit, the progressive nature of my disease. So my disease progressed along with his because I was looking at his pornography. And, you know, after a few sessions of individual therapy, and then I got into group therapy, I realized, holy cow, my family was a train wreck. And, and all these secrets, and and I knew there was nothing that I could tell my mother or father that wouldn't be told to some other relative. There was no sense of confidentiality. There was this, my dad was crazy. He when we were with others, he, could, he was the life of the party and everybody loved him and thought he was a wonderful guy. And, and that's when it really hit me that I had no business being in a relationship. And it was about that time that I heard this tape by a, a therapist who um, was at a codependency conference. And I've talked about this at multiple conferences when the topic is dating, because I've done a lot of those over the years. And I heard something that was just earth-shattering to me, which I'll share now. And that is that relationships are a continuum. uh, On the left-hand side is something called companionship. In the middle is something called friendship. And on the other side of friendship, there's something called love. And uh, companionship is... The definition is the event is more important than the person you're doing it with. Over time, when people become emotionally intimate and start talking about emotionally intimate things, for me, talking about my fear and who I was, then a fellowship or a friendship develops. and, And the definition of friendship is the person is more important than the event And then, when physical touch enters into the equation, that's one of the definitions of love. Being an engineer, being, I just, wow, (laughs) that just just blew my mind, and I realized that I would meet women and immediately want to be physical, which, he said, it's inappropriate, and at some level... We, we we're even though we're sick we know that it's not appropriate but we don't know any other way of, of doing it and and that was just the, the for me it was the what is it about me and uh, that causes me to be in relationship with these kind of people and part of it was reacting to my radar that was always on around women and being attracted for whatever reason physical, I get attracted to energy, the women that I see that have a lot of energy. That That is a trigger for me. And so when I, after several years of individual therapy and group therapy and several years of sobriety, that's when my sponsor suggested that maybe it was time for me to learn how to date in, in sobriety. and And the focus was on companionship. it's not about trying to judge if this is somebody i could marry it's inviting somebody of the opposite sex in my case to do something with me that i like to do and and that's how i started dating and and when i was dating prior to when i was out of college and working you know, my friends always knew when i was dating because i was i would disappear i would become enmeshed. and I would spend every waking moment with a person. And after about three or four months, people get tired of that. I think that's a definition of a dependency relationship. I was very dependent. I thought I had to have a relationship in order to be happy. And I wanted the, the touch, the physical part of it. And and, the, and all those are natural, God-given senses. God gave us all this. And it, it's wonderful. But I was, I was a romance addict. Running slow motion through the field towards somebody, but the closer she gets, the better she looks, that kind of stuff. So when I started dating, it was all about companionship, learning how to be around women and be comfortable, not feeling like I have to hold their hand or touch them. It's not appropriate. And it was revolutionary for me. I know I went, did things several times with one particular woman who finally asked me why haven't you touched me and the simple answer one of this guy's rules on that tape that i first heard is you don't talk about your recovery until at least 10 dates so it's it was the 10 date rule and we had been out maybe four or five times at that point in time and basically very superficial things and and i was able to give her an honest answer the reason that i haven't touched you is we don't know each other well enough. Because for me, what that meant was somebody before I touched anybody, they would have to know who I that I had this disease. And turns out in my see, I dated from nineteen ninety 1990 to nineteen ninety-six. In my six years of dating, my wife is the only person I ever told about my addiction. And I got up to about 10 or 11 dates with one other woman where I was starting to talk about my codependency recovery. That's how I eased into it talking about my dysfunctional family and 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 that relationship ended and the only, the only person I ever told that I was an addict was my spouse who asked me a very similar question because by this time we had gone out maybe a dozen times and she asked me that same question. And I felt comfortable enough that we knew each other well enough. I said, "Well, there's something you need to know about me. And uh, and I I was wondering, I I knew we were headed in that direction. My sponsor and I had talked about it. I didn't know how it was going to happen. It just happened on the phone one evening. And I said, there's something you need to know about me here it is. And, and I didn't go into detail. I just, I just said, this is what I have. I have a brochure. I'd be happy to give you. And she read that. She said, do you have anything more? And I said, yeah, there's a book. It was that first book that was, you know, back in 1984, it was called sexual addiction. Now it's called out of the shadows. And I gave her that book. She read it in one night, called me back and said, okay, what level are you? And I said I'm a level one, and okay, and and I said I, and I'm open to any questions you have, any specific questions you have, and the only specific question she ever asked me was, did my disease involve children? And and she said she wanted to have a family, and, and that was a concern, and and I said no, though it, it didn't involve children, and and we've been married 25 years. That's all the detail that she's ever. Asked for, and she knows when we watch TV. Well, I can't watch that. Let me know when that scene is off. And you know, we, I typically try to screen things and all that kind of stuff. But I was very fortunate that she's been very supportive and understanding. Did the
0: custom that came out of Nashville of dating three people at the same time? Did that come out as a result of your experience, or it came out later?
1: Yeah, I think it probably did. That because, as my sponsor likes to say, we're pioneers. And we made it up as we went along. Neither one of us had had experienced this before. One of the things he saw in me early on, and I told him that this idea of glomming onto somebody, he said, okay, there's a way to fix that. And I want you to see multiple people at the same time. So you're not going to be focusing on one. And, And so I did that. And part of me, And my codependency said, boy, I'm being disingenuous. When I was focusing, this is about companionship. Several people, we started talking about more intimate kinds of things, our spiritual walk and things like that. But it's amazing how many times you can be with somebody and not get into real personal stuff. And the first time I went out to dinner with my spouse, we got into some really interesting conversation about our lives and and our families and our spiritual beliefs. And I was, wow, this was, this was different. And it was, I still remember it very clearly and that's been a long time ago. And so it, you know, what I say about the woman that I was talking about my codependency, she had to, perfect resume. She was smart, she was attractive, she was very spiritual but the only way to describe it and I've talked about this in my dating talks is that there, there wasn't a spark. I, I, I don't know how to there just wasn't a spark and I intentionally in my dating life did not date triggers and we all know who they are <laughs> and and I found my wife extremely attractive but not a trigger and I, I don't know how to explain that either. I was only tempted once to, to date a trigger and because this person expressed an interest in me. But I had a boundary about dating people at work, and I was ready to break the boundary. It's just amazing how God works. This woman expresses an interest to my assistant that she's interested in me, and she's, she was drop-dead gorgeous. And I go to the airport to pick up a friend, and I bump into a woman that I used to work with but had moved to a different company. And she said, let's get together, have dinner and catch up. So we did. And turned out this woman had this woman at work who had expressed an interest in me as a roommate for a period of time. And all she said was, she has a lot of emotional problems. It was like, thank you, God. I was tempted to go in that direction. but So anyway, it, it all worked out. But yeah. Okay, let's talk about the higher
0: power for a few minutes. How do you experience your higher power in your life? And tagging along with that, how do you understand and experience a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience?
1: Yeah, I've always wondered, my sponsor and I always talk about, how is it that that we've been around this for so long? What is it about us? And I never, my first awareness was that maybe this faith thing was very simple. It's just believing that God loved me the way that I was. And I accepted that because, and I having that awareness that everything that I've tried to do up to now has not worked. My wife has left. Things on my job are really rough. I'm going to try this. And because I, I had seen such a dramatic change in this friend of mine and I came in with that really simple faith that this has to be better than the way I've been doing it, and and like I said, when I read that, read the problem, and it talked about God, I you know said this is the answer. It, it was just, and I know that I was very vulnerable at that point in my life. Reality was staring me in the face. I. They talk in AA about looking in the mirror. Has this disease have had any impact on me? All I got to do is look in the mirror, and I just had this awareness that that there was a God out there that loved me, just the way I was, knew everything about me, and and I just accepted that. And you know, the people, the church that I was attending there, just you know surrounded me with love and. And walked me through all that. I was trying to find a place to live. We had to sell our, our dream house. And these people that most people like to sit in the same place at church all the time. And i that's the way I am too. And and there was a young couple that sat in front of me. And we got to know each other. And, and they turned around. And I looked at a place which I was attracted to because it was in a beautiful location. It was on a lake and in upstate New York. It was beautiful, and it had a reputation uh, of being a swinging kind of place. And I looked at a place out there, and, and and the guy that was showing me around made some suggestive remarks about it. So I I was, yeah, this is probably not where I need to be. And that next Sunday, these people turned around and said, "Hey." We're going to move back to somewhere else in the state, and we need somebody to rent our house. Would you be interested? And it was a couple blocks from the church. It was in a blue-collar neighborhood, but I was out in the pristine suburbs in this beautiful custom home, and and I moved into this place, and and my my minister would drop in and and check on me, and they just surrounded me with love. They, you know, hearing me, seeing me cry through a couple of prayer meetings, I, I couldn't have asked for anything more. And I, so that's, and then seeing the expanse of God's love in terms of, I was attending a very black and white denomination at the time, and yet here's my Orthodox Jew sponsor, and, all these people that I was meeting in meetings with all these varied backgrounds and, and some of them even could, couldn't could bring themselves to use the word God. One of them who's been in this fellowship for a long time called him master for a long time. And but yet we had this, you know, as one of the readings and as Bill sees it, talks about we're like the people on an ocean liner that we've survived this tragedy. and. And, and we're all in this together. And so my concept of higher power is hearing through other people, particularly my sponsor and those that I'm closest with in the fellowship, hearing God's voice. And I've heard, I, 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 I talked about it, that I've heard God's voice twice. I, I've, I feel audibly in my head. The one was, I want my—I the meeting on, on Sunday. But the second one was, We'd gone through three rounds of in vitro and, and the last, the first time we had three embryos, the second time we had two and the last time we had one and, and the first two, we had been pregnant for a a short period of time and then lost it. And so this was the last embryo. It was implanted and that became our son. And so we have a picture of him at eight cells when he was implanted in my spouse and uh, we were told you're done there's nothing more to do here and so fortunately we had some friends in our at our church who had adopted three three daughters and uh, by then I, I was 48 and the only way you can do that in the us is is it's called a private adoption where you have have to advertise or network to put it out there that you're interested in adopting a child. And after our son had turned one, we went and spent the day with these friends and learned about the adoption process. And they said, it's going to take about a year and here's how you do it. And you guys are so well networked. My, My wife's in church work and her father was a retired pastor. We knew, you know, we could get the word out pretty well. And about, about a month later, my wife was heading out the door. She's a minister of music at our church to have choir practice. So I'm staying at home with our uh, little over one-year-old son, and the phone rings, and it's a couple from church saying, our niece is pregnant and, and wants to give up the child for adoption, and he's due in a month. She's going to have a boy. Are you interested? And my wife walked out the door. I was focused on taking care of my son and she comes home. She comes home later and said, what do you think? And I said, about what? <laughs> she said, the phone call we got before I left about adopting this child. And I said, "Oh, well, let's call and get some more information. We were building a house. We we're going to have to sell our house and it was going to happen in a month. And uh, we talked to, and got more information and said, can we sleep on it? And I got up the next morning and I'm, I'm praying over my cereal. And I said, God, give me wisdom about this decision. And I believe I heard in my head, God laughing and saying, I've got this. Are you kidding me? And by the time my wife got down to the breakfast table, she said, Well, what do you think? And I said, I said, We have to do this. And I've thought of a name. And his name is Andrew. And every birthday, I think of the fact that that boy could have been. Alive in this world, and I wouldn't have known him had we not made this decision. It's just, he is my son. And what a gift. I got to hold him 10 minutes after he was born. We have an open adoption with his birth mother and her entire family. He spends, he goes down there and spends a couple days with them every year at Christmas. She remarried and has two sons, did not marry. Andrew's birth father, but married another man and she has two sons. And so Andrew has some some blood half brothers or whatever. And the language around adoption is clumsy, but my wife is his mother and Kelly is his birth mother. And what a miracle. It's just thinking about all the miracles that have happened in my life. It's hard to not say that Something better than what I ever could have imagined has happened since I let go and let God.
0: Your story is moving me so much. I want to thank you. It's just incredible. And yeah, again, I'm just repeating myself, how God has woven your life in this beautiful tapestry. We've got a couple more topics just to touch on. How, how, How would you describe emotional sobriety?
1: Jess was one of the founders of uh, Emotions Anonymous and talks a lot about being in the present and you know, my fear takes me to you know, reliving events of the past or projecting about what bad things ha- can happen in the future. And it turns out you know, there's a there's an ancient, I think it's from the 1200s. I don't know how to describe it other than it's it, it's called the Enneagram, and it talks about nine personality types. and it and, and, and the idea is to understand your per- personality type because you're we all see life through a filter, and that filter is our personality. and I'm a six there's stuff out on the internet where you can take a test and and find out what your personality leanings are. But I'm fear-based that that is my personality and it's taught in spiritual circles. It's a spiritual practice. It's taught in spiritual practices to recognize what your filter is so that you can learn strategies to overcome your bias in order to serve others. And I naturally look through life in a fear filter. I'm constantly scanning for danger. I thought part of that was because of the the, the house that I grew up in, because I never knew what I was going to get when I walked through that door. But turns out, that's the way I'm wired, too. It turns out that you know, sixes are probably half the population are sixes. So a lot of us are wired this way. I think that's why certain political things appeal to people that, that tap in on other people's fear. And so just understanding that I'm fear-based, that my my challenge is, and, and that's why I do the inventories, is to, those. that's the character defect that I, that's the most damaging to me, is being aware of, where I'm at in my life, am I in the present? Am I am I regretting something that I did, or am I projecting about some fear? And I'm dealing a lot with that right now in my job. I moved to a different group in my company about seven months ago, and the job has been overwhelming. And I have this fear of failure, and I've been spending a lot of hours. My sponsor pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago you're choosing to spend a lot of hours. You're not being forced to. And that's caused me to become aware that I need to be honest with my boss and say, I need some help here. Cause I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I can't get everything done. And yet uh, when he asked me to do something immediately, I, yeah, oh sure. Yeah, I'll do that. And not say, wait a minute, you've asked me to do this and this where does what you just asked me to do rank in that i have a i have a difficult time doing that kind of stuff but i as i worked all day yesterday saturday for me i realized i need to get honest with him and say hey i'm really stretched here i have to i have to come clean and say that i need to know what the priorities are and i need for you to help me stay focused on those priorities and My tendency is when you ask for something, I jump to it because I want to make he's a new boss. So, you know, being aware of my circumstances, how that fits into and trying to think about how can I be of service to others in my workplace? Can I help people that ask me for help? Part of my job all day long is answering questions and providing information to people, which distracts me from getting other things done. And I, I have to be careful about my desire to be a people pleaser and, and make everybody love me and value me and all that kind of stuff. For me, that's what, where the inventories come in, in in terms of understanding, am I doing too much of that? Am I, do I need to say no occasionally? And recognize that no is a complete sentence, which is a, a real hard for me and not to have to explain, just say, nope, that's been a hard one for me to learn.
0: I Love that. No is a complete sentence. However, I'm sure I've heard it and I've never heard it. Okay. Let's talk about the steps. How would you describe the steps in your it's own discipline. words?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a discipline and uh, it's a spiritual discipline and they're in an order for a reason and I, like I said, I love step into action because it's, it gives you a how to, it gives you a definition. It, it, here are some exercises that you can do and we're all going to do them differently. That's okay. We find out what works for us, but the, that I know a lot of people get stuck on the fourth one. and. Because you know, the idea of sharing all the things we've ever thought or done with somebody else is, is a, a very humbling experience, but it, it's also the most freeing experience that many of us ever have. And you know, I can remember being at a meeting where my, my sponsor was sitting in, in the front row, and or it, as I recall it, for whatever reason, we had to get up to speak. Usually, we sit in a circle, and for this, at this particular meeting... In this particular location, because of space, you had to get up to speak and I was I was saying something that was really embarrassing for me uh, to share. Somebody who's been sober as long as me shouldn't have shouldn't be thinking or doing or whatever and I'm sharing this and I look up, he's sound asleep. He's slumped over in his chair and I'm thinking that's the beauty of this fellowship that people are so comfortable. And so safe that we can share the things that that we don't want anything anybody to know about us. And people are comfortable enough they can sleep through that stuff. And or like I said, I started the my uh, doing my written ten step. Yeah, I, I would do a ten step in my head, but writing it down really has much more of an impact. So. When I talk to people that I sponsor about steps, it's about writing because to me, writing it down, thinking it through, it's useful to me, writing it down, putting it in black and white and it, you don't have to spend a lot of time. You just have to stay at it. and Typically, the people that, that I've experienced that don't stick around are the people that never really do that. You n- never really take the time. And if any of us think about as much time as we spent in our addiction, our stuff work ends up being a fraction of that time. Yeah, I don't know how I got anything done. And I was successful. When I think about all the time that I lost in my head, having the discipline of figuring out a time that, that works for you to do it, I'm experiencing for the first time since both my boys are in college, I had a routine when I was single. I, it's much easier. I, I, it was much easier for me to do it when I was single. I had a routine every morning that I would read certain things from our fellowship and from my religious tradition. And I'm not a saint. I keep essay literature in my bathroom and I read it there. And it's just something that I'm a, I'm an industrial engineer, which used to be called methods engineering, and I'm a Methodist by, in my faith tradition. So that really suits my personality to do things in an orderly fashion. And, and for me, that's, it's a spiritual discipline that really helps us see the things that prevent us from being of service to others.
0: And do you do the steps over and over again? Have you done the steps over and over again?
1: I I pretty much do. The way I've tried to do it is I do my 10 step and then on on a regular basis, try to review, do a review for the year. And then I get some assignments from my sponsor. And I'll just be honest, I haven't done it in two years. This last two years have been really difficult for me. And but. That has worked out really well because that way I can see what my trends are. And I, and I got this right out of Step Into Action. I, I, I do any lust kits that I've had in the a, in a previous 24 hours. I list the things that I did or the good things that I did. I took phone calls. I made phone calls. I meditated. I, I prayed. I read literature. I do a devotion. I tried to be helpful. In in particular things, here's the things that I probably could have done better. And I usually end it with a a written prayer. God help me with this. And like I said, the fact that I write it down helps me remember to share that with somebody either on the phone or in a meeting that I've written down for that particular day. So it keeps it fresh. and, And that way I'm not. For instance, I realized that I was sexualizing one of the people on TV when I'm working out in the morning. And I decided I don't need to watch that channel any longer. This is a person that's on there regularly in the news in the morning. And I found myself sexualizing her. And, and so I said, okay, I, I'm, I just need to stop. And, but it, it took that coming up a couple of times to say, oh, <laughs> there's a pattern here. <laughs> we could do something about that. It's, I tell people at a newcomer's meeting, the good news is this program can work for you. The bad news is it never goes away. I've been doing this for going on 36 years. It it hasn't gone away. And, and it's good that it hasn't because I think that might prompt me to be complacent and realize that, oh, man, I can handle this on my own, and I can't.
0: All right, we're going to finish with uh, three questions that we're asking everyone. Um, the first question is, what is the most important thing for you in the program?
1: Whoa. Boy, boy, the, the fellowship is huge. When I got married, everybody in my wedding party, men and women, were all members of our fellowship. I had three men and three women. My sponsor read the old testament lesson in my Christian wedding. And so that the fellowship is extremely important. It's my spot my sponsor talks about the three-legged stool, you know, that does not stay upright and it's the steps, it's the sponsorship, and it's the fellowship that causes that step, that stool to to stay upright. And so it's tough to separate those three. I My son just turned uh, 22 last uh, Tuesday. And when I carried him out of the delivery room to take him down to the nursery, my sponsor was right outside the door. And that's pretty special. It's very special. All three of those, it's a three-way tie, I'd have to say, because It all came together. I was able to stay sober for a number of years without a sponsor or without co-sponsoring. And it's a step work that really helped me see that it's my character defects, my fear that was behind all of this stuff. And I'm spending the rest of my life letting go of that fear and recognizing that, as one of my friends in the fellowship says, we're already safe. We just have to reaffirm that to each other and recognize that God's got this, and uh, he's, he's brought me this far. He's not going to drop me now.
0: The three-legged stool. Absolutely. And the second question, have the 12 promises come true in your life?
1: Absolutely. Although there are times where I hear them being read say, hmm, where am I on that one? I'm getting close to retirement, and I've still got a couple of kids to get through college. And, but I get a pension and I'll get money from the government and I, we've saved really well. And, and for me, the financial stuff has, I grew up in a family where my, my dad was so poor and really drilled into us. You got to save, you got to take care of your family, that kind of stuff. And, with, without a doubt, Being able to share my story and give people hope. I had a guy call me or text me yesterday from Milwaukee. Hey, Dave, I I heard here you've got experience about dating. Can you help me? And it's what a gift that is. And uh, part of me says, when am I going to have time to do this? And the other part is I've been able to talk to a lot of people and share my experience, strength, and hope about them. And it's a wonderful experience.
0: And finally, what is the biggest gift that you've received from recovering an SA? I,
1: I, and I've ended a couple of talks saying this, but when you realize that you would not change places with anybody, you know, when I spent, when I spent my whole life wishing that I was somebody else. And when you, when you can honestly say, man, it, there's nobody I would change places with. It's what a gift. And uh, one which I just I feel so fortunate to have been given. And I think about the timing and, and just how everything uh, fell into place when it needed to fall into place. It took me that year and a half after I knew that I was an addict to prove to myself that I couldn't do it by myself. What I didn't hear on that in that television show that day was a solution. I just knew that I had an addict and I knew I, I needed to stop. I was smart enough to put two and two together there. But how do you stop? And when I learned about the steps, surrender, prayer, phone calls, meetings, that's when I started putting the tools in the toolkit and pulling them out when I, when stuff came up. And I'm living testimony that it works. And I hope it can work for everybody that's listening because it's it's not to be missed.
0: Dave, I just want to thank you so much, really from the bottom of my heart. This has been probably one of the most moving fireside chats I've done so far. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I can't wait for everyone else to hear it. So really, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah,
1: well, thanks, Daniel, for doing this.
0: Thank you for listening to today's Essay Fireside Chat. We hope you've enjoyed listening and gained as much as we have producing it. Anything you've heard on this podcast is strictly the opinion of the individual speaker. The principles of Essay are found in our 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. If you have any questions you would like to pose to today's speaker, or a burning desire to reach out to them, you can write to me at daniel at com. Remember, SA is self supporting through its own contributions. You can donate to Seventh Tradition by going to sa.org forward slash donate. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast or visit safireside.com to hear all the previous fireside chats, as well as the future ones as soon as they're released. May God bless you and keep you until then.